Thank you for listening and welcome to the Life Radio Show, a proud member of the SJ Network. I'm your host, Don Smith. Stan Livingston zooms in to tell us about the actor's journey, and more specifically his own journey, from Chip Douglas on My Three Sons and onward. If you enjoy the show, like and follow The Life 106.9 on Facebook and Don Smith Comedy on Twitter, or tune in live on Tuesdays when we're back from COVID-19 lockdown from 7 to 9 p.m. on WWSU 106.9 FM, or you can stream the show live at WWSU1069.org. Overwhelms me. A brutal presence. All right. Hey, welcome to the Life Radio Show. It is that time again. It has been a morning so far. Uh, never buy a comedy club because, uh, you know, at least not in the state of Ohio because they will give you the runaround all day long. All day long. I've been fighting with the uh, the, the Secretary of State now. So it's. It just keeps going. It just keeps, but that's, that's been my morning so far and I'm hoping it's going to get better because, you know, I, I have hopefully enough coffee in me to, to keep me talking and somewhat with it, or at least as with it as I typically get on this show. Uh, my first guest is in, we are zooming today. We're not Skyping. We're zooming today. And my, my guest is on, uh, Stan Livingston. I am here. There he is. There, there was a pause. I was like, maybe he ran away already. <laughs> Just taking a sip of coffee. That's all. Okay. Because you wouldn't be the first to take off running as soon, as soon as the show started. I don't think I've ever left the show. No, I take that back. I had one show where it turned out it was like a prank call <laughs> about 10 oh, minutes. into It turned ugly and I said a few words and suddenly there, these two guys had silence to fill for the next hour. <laughs> yeah that'll that'll do it that'll do it i i've had some silence to fill in my day yeah Dude, I, well i used to do this live on the air so if somebody got to cussing too much then i'd, I'd have to stop because of fcc yeah i had one guest in an hour-long interview i think we were maybe 20 minutes in i said eh, i think we're done <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah I, well, we, we, that, that you can get guests that just give you yes or no answers. That's always fun. That that's a blast. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. yeah. You might as well interview yourself when it comes to that. It's like I always wondered how Clint Eastwood would have been as a you know a guest on a radio show because he didn't yeah. say too much, and uh, when he said something, he didn't say too much. Mm -hmm. I, I think Don Rickles said of him, "You could watch a fly die on his lip." <laughs> Uh, I, I love Don Rickles. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but, but we're here to talk about you, Stan. So welcome All to right. the show. It's good to have you. Uh, now we're just we're just going to start right off. You you are an actor. Uh, probably one of your better known roles is Chip Douglas uh, from My Three Sons, right? Yeah, I, I'm best known for that. Um, no matter what I do, if I was the guy that made Star Wars in 1977 on my obituary, it wouldn't mention that at all. It, it would just be say, Chip from My Three Sons. <laughs> I saw what happened to Fred McMurray. You know, here's a guy that did 100 movies, many of them, you know, great films, Double Indemnity, The Apartment, Kane Mutiny, uh, Disney films, Shaggy Dog, and his obituary said the quintessential dad on long-running tv series my three sons and that's all it said <laughs> oh that yeah that's that's rough when you get you, you can kind of get pigeonholed into that i can see 
Yeah. Well, I started off at a very young age. Uh, you know, I was nine when we did the pilot for that, and it took me to the time I was almost 22, 23 years old. So uh, covered a, a good swath of my life. And, uh, you know, and when you add it up, you put it into reruns and stripping the series when they used to run it five days a week afterwards on the networks and then uh, TV Land, Nick at Night, all the different various networks that have run it. Uh, that show has literally been on the air. Come this September, I think it's September 19th, it'll be 60 years on TV. Wow. Without going off. That's really crazy. Yeah, that, that that's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah, as, as I'm seeing on here, 380 episodes. And that wasn't your first venture. You had some other things you did before that. Yeah, I actually... Uh, well, I did some work like all actors do where you have no lines. You're basically hired as an extra kid. And then, you know, I finally uh, did an Ozzy and Harriet where I was hired as an extra. And for whatever reason, Ozzy Nelson uh, came up to me just before we shot and said, could you say this line? And, you know, he told me what to say. And I said it a couple of times. It was perfect, perfect. Now, right when you're right here, say that line. And then I did it. And I guess he liked the way I did it. And he went up to my mom afterwards and said, hey, listen, we'd like, to have him come back, uh, leave your information. And, you know, you hear that a lot in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, then you never hear from anybody again. Well, true to his word, uh, I came back, and this was about 1956 when that happened. And from 1956 to uh, the beginning of My Three Sons, I guess through beginning of uh, 1960, I did probably four or five shows for the Nelsons every year where I played a, a neighborhood kid. In fact, ironically, the very last episode I did, my brother was working as an actor by then and had done a couple of movies and TV shows, but we actually were in a Ozzy and Harriet episode together, and that was the last one I was going to be able to do because I was hired to do My Three Sons at that point, and uh, Barry stayed on, on Ozzy and Harriet for the next three or four years. He kind of uh, took the place that I had as their quintessential neighborhood kid. Oh, well, that's, that's cool. You get to get to work with your brother when you're a kid. That was, uh, yeah, I did. Well, may, yeah. maybe it would be cool. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we wanted to, but it, you know, it's just luck of the draw how stuff comes up. I mean, we both kind of had movie careers by then too. I'd done about four or five films, I guess. I uh, did one called Please Don't Eat the Daisies uh, with Doris Day and David Niven, uh, Rally Around the Flag Boys. Um, uh, with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. And coincidentally, Barry was hired on that film, too. <laughs> nice. Now, are you the older brother or the younger brother? I'm the older brother, yeah. I'm oh, okay. years older. So it would have been more fun for you. Uh, probably, yeah, it was more fun. I, You know, I probably was more cognizant of what was going on around me. But, uh, yeah, the rally around the flag, uh, it was kind of an interesting little thing happened. We were supposed to be watching TV when Paul Newman comes in, and he's talking to us. We don't pay any attention because of the TV set. And, uh, you know, we were supposed to just be concentrating on the TV set. Well, the director was getting angry and angry at my brother because he said, you're not looking at the TV set. Just look at the TV set. And uh, finally, we broke for lunch. They took my brother and took him to an ophthalmologist, and it turned out my brother had cross eyes, and that's why it didn't look like he was looking at the TV set. And by 1 o'clock, he was fired, and I had a brand-new brother for the rest of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what created my brother's character. You know, he sort of kind of became that quintessential nerd. Uh, he had to get glasses, and he was one of the very few kids working in the industry that had glasses. I mean, he was so darn cute with the glasses on. He looked like 
like a brain, man. He, like, he was a genius. And that was kind of the roles he started getting, including when he came over to My Three Sons and played Ernie. I think he was, you know, above average intelligence and was in my class. I guess that meant I was stu- either stupid or he was really smart because he was about two feet shorter than me, but in, in the same class. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking through your IMDb and there's a, let's see, because there, there, there are a handful of movies in the 70s that you were part of? Yeah, you know, kind of the usual run when your series uh, gets canceled. You're a freelance actor and you start working for for Roger Corman or Gene Corman, his brothers. You know, I did a lot of, I guess, those horror type films. Uh, I did one called Private Parts uh, that was there was a director named Paul Bartel, uh, who was you know made a buzz back then. He was very Alfred Hitchcock like and. Uh, he did this film. Unfortunately, they titled it, well, when I read the script, it was called Vital Parts. And then it changed to Private Parts. <laughs> and I was like, is this a porno movie? <laughs> what is this? And um, they gave it that title. And the film is actually very well done. It's kind of sorted in a way for the time. Um, and it had some graphic gore in it. But it got a rave review from Judith Christ, uh, who was one of you know the big movie reviewers of, the, of that era. And uh, but they had problems getting advertising for it to put it in into theaters. Why? Because of that stupid title. It was called Private Parts. And back in those days, you know, you had your regular movie ads, and I, I think it was Congress or something. However, they delineated any kind of films that were X-rated had to be on a separate page, and you could tell that page because they didn't use black ink. It was kind of more grayed out. And that was the only place that would accept the movie with that title. And unfortunately, it was just a regular movie, uh, like a murder movie. Well, yeah, that, that's, that's funny how that's, that's mild compared to titles we have now. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Well, in fact, uh, I think it was Howard Stern eventually made a movie yeah. called Private Parts. So whenever I mention, they go, oh, I don't remember you. And I go, no, no, there was actually a movie called Private Parts made around, I don't even remember, I guess it was 74, something like that, 75 maybe by the time I got into the theaters. Uh, but because of that faux pas, the MGM pulled the movie. You know, finally they just go, you know, we can't advertise where we need to advertise. And so it was originally called Vital Parts. Any idea why it got... The script was, the script was called Vital Parts. Well, if you see the film, you'll, <laughs> you'll find out why. Oh, okay. right, they, it's kind of a sordid tale. Uh, I think the main character, although this is revealed almost in the very last scene, turns out to be a hermaphrodite, oh, which is okay. pretty, pretty ballsy for those days. Literally. But other than that, it was, you know, just a, a strange, weird movie, but really well made. And like I said, if you watch it, it's, it's very much like a Hitchcock film. Oh, okay. Um, well, I'll have, tell. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, Paul went on to direct a couple other crazy films. One was called Death Race 2000. And then I, I guess his most famous film it's, uh, was called Eating Raul, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, of the Grand Guignol. Uh, yeah. Uh, which, could also, which could also, from the name, end up on that same list as Private Parts. Yeah, it was a little better disguised, though, so at least you could get the newspaper advertising where the other one wasn't. But yeah, you know, it was a Sweeney Todd story. It's all it was, it was a rework of Sweeney Todd. Huh. And, uh, you know, hey, years later, I think Don, Johnny Depp 
did yeah. that film, did Sweeney Todd, and God knows how many times it was done before that, done as a play, uh, and uh, did well enough to give Paul a career. Uh, nice. Nice yeah. guy, strange guy, but that was what was so good about it. You know? yeah, Everybody I, else it seems to be the same. I've been in a handful of movies with, with the strange names like that that could go either way as possible porn. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was also in Attack of the 60-Foot Centerfold. I was going to ask about that, mainly because your character's name was uh, Glenn Manning, which is a fellow I used to work for. Well, you know where they got that name. There's, what was it called? The Amazing Colossal Man. I think that, okay. I don't think that was made. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do remember well, that. Well, his character's name was Glenn Manning. And, you know, the film had a lot of different asides in there and tributes to different movie characters. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Glenn Manning. In fact, I just saw Attack of the of the uh, Colossal Man the other I'd never seen it, so I never got the connection. <laughs> and then I was like, well, wait a minute, didn't I? play that character in some movie and then i realized that the guy that made it was giving a tribute to that film or to that character nice yeah is- we we had a one, one of the people i worked with when when we worked for glenn manning uh used to make reference to that because glenn was about six ten maybe seven foot tall and just an enormous head i used to <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah well, i guess they're trying to keep everything big you know, yeah. in those films. <laughs> yeah maybe maybe that's who the original glenn manning was based on i don't know that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know well it was the typical film of the 50s era which you know was everything was the nuclear scare and if you got oh, near yeah. nuclear radiation you know and you were a lizard you turned into godzilla or some big fish or a giant moth or rodan um yeah and then I guess if you get it on you uh, and you're a person, <laughs> you turn into a 60-foot guy. Right. Why not? There was, there, was also, you know, there was also Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, which yes. was a legitimate harp. I remember seeing it in the theater when I was a kid. It scared the, the Jesus out of me. That's <laughs> sitting there. And I think she got it because she went inside of a flying saucer and touched something. It was like a globe, but she, her husband saw it and he took off left her in the desert and she was spunky enough to go up the ramp and go in it and i guess she got some radiation poisoning and suddenly was 50 feet tall yeah, and that, her that, husband that. husband didn't want her anymore <laughs> that was the rest of the story <laughs> there's there's a movie i watched a little while ago that was an independent movie i interviewed the directors on the show they had made it it was a it turned into a uh uh, <laughs> he got exposed to radiation while he was sitting next to a sloppy Joe. So it was something. It was something man, which I just can't remember. That. <laughs> I can't remember. Well, that'll do it. That'll it do was, it to you, even if nothing's wrong with it. <laughs> it was such a fabulous movie. If you ever, I'm, uh, let me see if I can find that real quick because that one is definitely one of my favorites. And it, yeah, that one, uh, just because of the. the the special effects, because it, it's a, it's an independent film, so the special the special effects are cheesy as they are on purpose. They overdid it on the campy. Because okay. at one point, there's a guy that's getting pulled into underneath the garage door by this uh, <laughs> by by this radioactive man eating manwich. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like some of the fifties horror film. Remember? Uh, oh yeah, the creeping terror. Uh, which is the monster. Well, apparently the, what I read about it is they had a monster outfit for it. And um, unfortunately they lost it a, a couple of days before production or it was stolen. And so to substitute, they got a piece of carpeting 
that they hired some college kids to hide under and sort of undulate. <laughs> that was the monster. Nice. Uh, in- Inhumanwich is what it's called. Oh, really? Inhumanwich. Highly okay. recommended. It is fabulous. You can actually see it on, on Amazon Prime, I believe. Wow. But uh, no, the, my, my favorite part is, of course, the garage door is like half open. It starts to suck this kid in and they pull him out. Yeah. And his legs are now nothing but bone. He's still alive and he lives the rest of the movie. They patch him up and the rest of the movie, he's still got these really just bone legs all the way down. <laughs> to the bone. Wow. Just talking like it's a normal thing. Sounds very, <laughs> very, very Ed Woodish. <laughs> yes, it's a beautiful movie. It's it's absolutely hilarious. Just the well, I, I like films. I mean, I like great films too, but I like watching those. They're, oh, you know, every laugh. They're they're funny. You know, if you can yeah. sit there and appreciate it for what it is. I mean, what people don't realize is it takes as much effort to make a bad movie as it does <laughs> a good one. It's just that the sensibilities of the director are completely, uh, you know, what the difference is. Yeah. You got to get a camera, you got to get the locations, the permits, all the things you got to do to make it. It's, you know, hellish to deal with all that. So you go through that, whether you're making, uh, you know, Gone with the Wind or whether you're making uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Or in, or Inhuman, which, which... Or Inhuman. <laughs> Next time they got to do the sequel, Inhuman with Mustard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, David Cornelius uh, wrote and directed that. That's I, I could I couldn't think of the name, but yep, that's who. <laughs> I'm not familiar with him. <laughs> but, he, he's he's been on the show. I believe he's out of Indiana. I think so. Yeah. Well, as they say, he'll be remembered long after Shakespeare is forgotten, but <laughs> not until not until. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun. So okay, where where are we? Let me let me go back to your page on here on the yeah on my page. Well, we had nothing like that on my percentage. <laughs> we had no man, which it, we did have men, a lot of men, yeah, but no man, no, no radiation. No, yeah, no radioactive man, which. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, what's uh, what are your? Do you have any current projects you're working on that you'd like to talk about? Um, yeah, I can talk about a couple of them. Unfortunately, like everybody else, they're all on hold. <laughs> yeah, I was just getting set to produce and direct uh, with a couple partners uh, a TV pilot. It's actually a talk show, but we thought, you know, because of what's going on, maybe we'll just go with something simple right now. And um, and then when they came down with you can't do anything order, uh, we're just been sitting here and, uh, you know, hoping that in the next couple months it'll it'll break up and we'll be able to shoot it and we were just getting ready to shoot the tv pile actually it was supposed to have been shot already it would have been may 16th so you know we're sitting here with a, a date that keeps getting pushed down and down um and then i have another tv pilot that i've been working on uh, for actually about about a year developing it uh with a couple other partners and uh it's called pot melting <laughs> and it's about a Jewish guy who's about to marry a Chinese girl and their respective families. Uh, what could go wrong? <laughs> so, yeah. That and a couple of films, you know, the films are just harder to get going these days, but uh, yeah, I've got a two or three films out there too. That one I'm rewriting. I wrote a film years ago that I had good luck with, Good luck meaning I got a couple of agents to represent me uh, over the years where it was sort of active and 
it actually got optioned uh, three times and I was making a living as a writer, hmm. not a produced writer, but you know, that you, that's what you find out when you become a writer in, in Hollywood is a lot. You, know, you can make money whether it gets produced or not when people option it and, you know, they put it into development and stuff like that. But kind of a neat story. It's a story of a pair of con men who sell the Eiffel tower as scrap metal right before World War II to some <laughs> German industrialists. So it's a action thriller with, you know, obviously comedy in it. And uh, it's got a lot of twists and turns and kind of a big surprise at the end. That's about as far as I'll cop to right now. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to give too much away. No, no. It's it's, it's really a, a fun film. And, you know, let's uh, see what I can do with it again. Like I said, I wrote it and had good luck. And then I got frustrated with it, uh, primarily because the era I was dealing with uh it was really hard to do any kind of special effects very costly it's also period uh but you know it takes place in 1939 and it was would still be considered a foreign film uh you know needed probably 95 percent of it to be shot in paris so back in those days that that was almost like three strikes against it going in but the story was strong enough that you know people were trying to develop it further and and get it going. So now all the problems that were there, you know, would vanish. You could get a somebody out of high school who's any good at CGI and take care of the problems that would have been insurmountable back then. Like a high school level uh, person in After Effects could take care of them. Yeah, it's it's a lot different now, I'd imagine. Cause it is, yeah. yeah. Everything computer, you can do just about anything you want if you're if you're good enough at it. <laughs> yeah, well, in this one, it was a matter of erasing a lot of things out of the background, yeah. uh, which would have been very tough back then. Now with tracking and the different uh, programs that are available to you, it, you know, like I said, you see people and you go, my God, that guy's only 16, but he can do all that. Yeah. You can do the crowd scene when Spartacus is fighting 2,000 guys, you know, but there's really only four on the set. No problem. Yeah. Now, you've you've taken turns as producer, writer, director, editor, even cinematographer. Uh, that, did you always want to be in show business? I know you started out young. Was that yeah. your choice to get involved, or were you pushed into it? <laughs> no, not at all. I think I just displayed the qualities or the attributes that obviously my parents – thought, gee, we should do something with this, but they didn't know what to do. Uh, it, it was really just a matter of the confluence of luck and being at the right place at the right time. Uh, when I was very young, you know, meaning three, four years old, my parents took me to a swim school in Hollywood, and I learned how to swim, and it just, when looking back, seemed like we were there every day. I guess it was something for me to do. Um, but the the swim school I went to, the lady that owned it was very entrepreneurial. And uh, yeah, she started taking pictures of kids. Uh, she had a porthole in the side of her pool underwater. So you could see us and they put cars and bicycles and swings underwater and take pictures. And she got some notoriety because of that. And it was a show of that era called You Asked For It that somebody asked for it. We were called Water Babies, and they came out and covered us, you know, doing all these great things. Of course, she was probably the one that asked for it. And uh, then other magazines uh, of that era that were big came out and did these uh, large uh, photographic spreads, uh, Vogue, McCall's. And um, because of that, a lot of Hollywood people started taking their kids there to learn how to swim, agents, 
producers, directors. And there was an agent there whose daughter, uh, you know, wanted to learn how to swim. And uh, she and my mom became friendly and she was smitten with me. You know, I was cute looking, blonde, extroverted. And, you know, she thought I had the right qualities to uh, become a child actor. And so she gave me a chance and sent me out. Like I said, I got hired as an extra a couple times until that Ozzie and Harriet episode. And uh, after that episode, because of that one line, I was actually able to join the Screen Actors Guild and continued on on Ozzie and Harriet, started doing movies, and all that led to a, well, actually, in between My Three Sons and Ozzie and Harriet, another thing happened that was kind of another rung on the ladder of my career. Um, While we were shooting Ozzie and Harriet, I didn't have anything to do some of the time, so I'd just wander around, you know, the studio lot to other stages, the one across from me, which... Uh, had there was a horse known as Mr. Ed. I've heard <laughs> so of I'd him. So I go over there, yeah. And the, you know, the trainer would allow me to feed Mr. Ed carrots, and I'd learn how to groom him. Then I went on to another set where they had a dog, and I'd play with the dog. And then one day I was there doing that, and this guy came up to me and wanted to know who I was. And he seemed pretty imposing. And uh, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know. I said, am I in trouble? And he goes, no, no, you're not in trouble. He goes, I, I just wondered who you were. And then he says, uh, are, are you here alone? Or are you with, like, your parents? And I said, well, I'm working on Ozzie and Harriet. And I go, you know, my mom's there. So he goes, I'd like to meet your, meet your mom. And then I thought I really was in trouble. So I took him back over to the Ozzie and Harriet set and introduced this guy to my mom. And, you know, I was so young, I didn't realize really what was going on. But the guy was Jackie Cooper. Um, I don't know if that name rings a bell to you, but he was one of the original Little Rascals. Uh, in 1935, he was nominated for an Oscar. He was the youngest uh, child actor ever nominated for an, as an actor for a movie called Skippy. And, uh, you know, went on to have an adult career, too. Uh, you know, he was in the original Superman. He played Perry White. Uh, oh, okay. He was also a, a director, and at this time he was directing and starring in a TV series called Hennessy, which was being shot across from uh, Ozzie and Harriet. And uh, anyway, I didn't realize what the discussion was till about six months later when he must have gone away, took the movie Skippy that he starred in, and tried to develop it as a TV series. And at the end of 1958, we shot a pilot with me in the title role of Skippy. And he was the director and producer of it. And I guess I must have reminded him of himself or something. And uh, so I starred in this TV pilot called Skippy, which uh, unfortunately didn't, well, maybe I should say fortunately didn't sell. (laughs) But I was under contract to Jackie Cooper for about two years. And in those days to get work, the only way, you know, we didn't have VCRs. There was no videotape. There weren't DVDs. There was no video files. If you wanted to show somebody your work, you had to contact the producer, get a copy of the film, meaning a film reel, rent a theater at night after midnight, after they finished showing their, uh, whatever they were showing in the theater, and pay the projectionist to screen the film to whoever. Anyway, that particular piece of film eventually got screened for the producer's of my three sons and literally the next day they signed me to to play chip and it took maybe six months more till they got all the people together the only person at that point who had been hired was fred mcmurray so it was a, a very valuable piece of film for me and got me please don't eat the daisies and you know other work that i did there that they 
had this. And, and the funny part of that was, you know, I never saw Skippy. You know, 12 <laughs> o'clock was after my bedtime. So I did this brilliant piece of film in 1958. I always wondered how it turned out or if I was any good. And lo and behold, about two years ago, this guy contacted me uh, and I immediately recognized the name. His name was Jay Potter. And he was a child actor of that era too. And uh, he ended up playing my best friend on Skippy. And then we remained friends for a while after that. And his mom and my mom were buddies. And uh, so I was talking to him and I said, hey, did you ever see Skippy? And he goes, oh, yeah, no, I've seen it. And I go, well, how did you see it? I never saw it. And I ran into Jackie Cooper years later. Uh, it's probably in the, gosh, probably the, once in the late 70s, maybe once in the late 80s. And he invited me over to his house. One time I went to his attic. Another time we went through his garage and he just couldn't find the film. Well, <laughs> when this buddy of mine came down here, uh, I said about the year and a half, two years ago with Skippy, he said he had it on DVD. Um, anyway, I finally got to see it, you know, and yeah, I could understand why I was being hired as a child actor. You know, at least I had the perspective of it's way in the distance. So I wasn't really connected to it all. You could just kind of watch it. And, right. uh, you know, it yourself, but you're like just kind of watching some child actor up there. But yeah, it was really uh, amazing part. You know, I didn't realize my screen time. I was probably 90% screen time on it and literally wow. had my name above the title. And um, anyway, so I said, how did you, you know, get this? He says, well, let me let me give something to him. He went out to his car and brought in a film reel. Anyway, I think it was his mom borrowed that film reel from Jackie Cooper and never returned it is what happened. <laughs> so all those years, Jackie and I were looking for it. Uh, Jay, Potter's, Jay Potter eventually got it, but his mom uh, yeah, was the one who probably borrowed it for Jay to show Jay's work because he had a good couple good scenes in it. Probably got him other work too. Yeah, which I was anyway, going to say, there probably you, wouldn't have been a lot of copies. It's not like you can just burn one now of it, you know. It's the only copy, but thank God somebody along the way had the sense to digitize it, turn it into a DVD, and the DVD is almost flawless, so it must have happened years ago. And I took the film reel, so as soon as I opened the can, I knew it was toast, because old film, when it goes bad, unless you store it right, it smells like vinegar, and it stunk like vinegar and i took it to a friend who had a film chain and i was thinking i might be able to get a better copy of it and, and it was so curled at the end and damaged that that was it so i just i kept the film reel and i'll, I'll never open it again unless i find some oil and make myself a salad or something um, <laughs> but uh, yeah it was kind of gratifying you know to see something that you did it was shot the week after i turned eight years old in 58 november and i think it was early december we shot this and uh, you know to wait 60 years to see it the anticipation was just too much <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's fun I, I thought i think it's interesting you had to do all that stuff rent a theater after midnight do all that reel to reel and now you can just email an mp4 and you're good i know <laughs> you know, just watch TV and rip it right off the air and you've right. got to do it or hire somebody to do an air check and send you the file. Yeah. I mean, it's in those days, you know, it was completely different, you know, same thing with pictures. That's all evolved too from, you know, how pictures get around. I mean, those days, uh, your headshot, uh, had to be delivered by a courier. Yeah. You know, if somebody wanted to see it, you know, because you couldn't get out of the studio, but you'd have a courier service who would deliver your headshot to a producer 
uh, if they were seriously considering you for a, you know, a, a film or something. And, you know, eventually then actors started bringing in their own headshots or the agents would send them out and now you push a button. Yeah, you know, that's why I'm always telling people, uh, you better have a good headshot. You know, it's not like the old days where they're looking at yours. They're looking at a wall of photos. So how do you get yours to pop when they're looking at, you know, 25 at a time? And it's the size of your thumbnail. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to take a quick break, uh, refill my coffee cup. And uh, if you want to stick around when we get back, we'll, we'll talk about some dumb news stories. Sounds good to me. Sounds good. All right. We'll be back here shortly with, with Stan Livingston on the Life Radio Show. Don't go anywhere. I got in my VCR just to see what was inside. All the wires and the buttons intertwined carefully.
flooded my VCR Just to see what was inside All the wires and the buttons intertwined carefully mounted into the carpet lining Enough is enough! I have had it with these microphone snakes on this microphone plane! All right. Hey, welcome back to the Life Radio Show. I'm your host, Don Smith. We, we are marching right along here in lockdown. I have uh, Stan Livingston joining me on Zoom still. Uh, from hey, all kinds. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm locked down right to the chair. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so known for many things as well as my three sons. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> Some of them in show business. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we got some fascinating news stories to look at. So uh, I, I, I hope you're ready for this because I'm, I'm probably not because some of them get really weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, scientists have reported getting so high on the nitrous oxide emitted by penguin poo that it actually made them ill. The levels of nitrous oxide, more commonly known as laughing gas, given off by colony uh, by the penguin colony's feces, was about a hundred times higher. Then in a uh, fertilized field, uh, Professor Bo Elberling from the University of Copenhagen uh, said the uh, truly intense amount of nitrous oxide exhumed was enough to send someone completely cuckoo. Uh, That was a quote. (laughs) (laughs) It is truly intense, uh, not least because nitrous oxide is 300 times more polluting than CO2, he explained. After nosing in guano, the term given to the excrement of seabirds and bats, uh, after nosing in the guano for several hours, I guess he was, yeah, one goes completely cuckoo. Uh, One begins to feel ill and get a headache. I'd say if you're nosing around in guano, you're probably a little bit cuckoo to begin with. I I agree with that statement. Well, that's explains what my dentist must have been on. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't nitrous oxide. It was penguin poop. That's <laughs> penguin poop. Is that where they get it? Huh? No wonder those birds uh, walk upright. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying to get, to get the heck from. out of here. <laughs> well, that's why they have happy feet, I guess. Isn't that a, yeah. pen- <laughs> Isn't that a penguin movie? I don't know. Penguin movies. I All did right. see a movie. Yeah. I think it, it was with penguins. It was cute. Yep. <laughs> well, penguins are adorable. I just didn't know that they pooped laughing gas. Now that's even, that's even more adorable. That's why they're so happy. Exactly. Yeah. They <laughs> always smiling. Hey, the ice sheet is melting. It doesn't matter to us. We're happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see what else we got here. A former BP employee who was sacked for mocking management with a popular Hitler meme has been backed by Australia's federal court on Friday. Three federal court judges upheld the Fair Work Commission's decision that uh, BP technician Scott Tracy had been unfairly dismissed by the oil and gas company. Tracy had posted a meme depicting Hitler as an unnamed BP manager having a tantrum that workers were were rejecting a pay deal. Uh, The clip comes from 2004 movie Downfall. A lot of people have probably seen that meme. And people frequently overlay humorous subtitles that change the target of Hitler's ranting to more trivial topics, such as lack of a camera on a uh, iPod touch or his inability to find Waldo. (laughs) The funny thing is, is if you work in a corporate hierarchy, that guy Hitler works at almost every company. (laughs) Just about. (laughs) I I think I've probably worked for him a couple times myself. Yeah. (laughs) 
yeah. Hitler and Glenn, Man Glenn Manning are both previous bosses of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God Hitler didn't turn into Glenn Manning. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that would have been weird. He had a big enough ego. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The attack of the 50-foot racist. I don't know. Check out a 50 foot Hitler. What could yeah. be worse? <laughs> okay, now his political career might be dead. I'm not talking about Hitler. This We're moving on. Uh, the mayor of a town in Peru posed as a dead coronavirus victim by laying in a coffin while wearing a face mask to avoid being arrested for violating lockdown rules that he should have that he should have that should have been helping enforce. In, in According to reports on Thursday, uh, Jamie Rolando Urbina Torres uh, was out drinking with friends on Monday night when he allegedly played dead to throw off cops who arrived uh, to bust them for defying public health orders amid the pandemic. Uh, the mayor, who has already faced criti criticism for being absent for much of the time during the outbreak, is shown in a photo released by local police lying in a coffin with his eyes closed. <laughs> wow. <I get> <laughs> And I thought we had crazy politicians here. Oh, <laughs> I could definitely see some of our politicians trying to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and getting away with it. Because some, some of them have a backing that just defies logic. Yeah, everything's yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do, we'll back you. Exactly, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't understand. I think that's what scares me the most sometimes is that this blind loyalty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or just... Of criminal intent, maybe. <laughs> yes, that's that's a good. That, that's why I say with one of the parties, uh, it's sort of like, well, if you're criminal. There is a political party that would love to have you. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, that's their qualification to get in. Yeah, there you go. We we were talking about beards a little bit earlier. Uh, men sporting big, bountiful beards might have a reason to feel more confident, and not just because women might be more sexually attracted to the guys who can grow them. Uh, research shows that flowing facial hair might have evolved to help fight hungry humans better absorb blows to the head, according to a new study published in the journal Integrative or Organismal Biology. Uh, the findings are a culmination of several research projects by the same team on human resilience, including experiments on the ability of the human face to take a punch. <laughs> and Is that why bikers have beards? <laughs> yeah, it's a good possibility. Uh, we found that uh, fully furry samples were capable. <laughs> I've never been called that before. I am a fully furred sample. <laughs> we wow. found samples were capable of absorbing more energy than plucked and sheared samples, according hmm. to a jaw-dropping experiment conducted by biologists Ethan uh, Becerra, Stephen Nailaway, and David Carrier. Uh, fortunately, no humans were slugged in the name of science. Instead, a team of a team employed an epoxy composite skull covered in several types of sh several styles of sheepskin, plucked, trimmed, and full-on mutton chops, so to speak. Uh, mm. To replicate a punch, they then dropped a weight on the chin and measured the force via load cell. It's all very scientific to punch somebody in the face. That's they sound like uh, what do you call it? Nobel candidates to me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll win the Nobel Prize. Yeah, for, yeah hair. for for proving that that if you wear if you have a beard you might be able to take a punch better. I don't know. I'll I'll take their word for it. I have a beard, but I still don't want to be punched in the face at random just to prove it. Right. <laughs> All right. Let's see if we have uh, time for another one. We get. Uh, let's see if I can find a really fun one. I don't know. I don't know. That's 
it's getting harder and harder. The coronavirus pandemic, everything is, uh, you know, everything's news about that. It's just, it gets a little boring to report on that time and time again. It's all it is. You know, you turn on the TV or listen to the radio, that's all you hear. Pretty much. A Massachusetts animal hospital shared a witness's blurry photo of a mystery animal that the photographer said appeared to be a monkey on the loose. Uh, Shawsheen Animal Hospital in Tewksbury uh, posted a photo to Facebook uh, that was snapped by a member of the public who spotted what they believed was to be a monkey wandering near the clinic. Uh, if you see this animal, call Tewksbury police immediately, the, poke said, the, the post said. <laughs> the poke, I don't know. Uh, do not touch the monkey, <laughs> which that's always good advice. Do not touch the monkey. Monkeys can be dangerous and carry herpes B virus, uh, which can be fatal to humans. I did not know that monkeys had herpes. That's that's a new one. I, There's nothing like meeting a monkey with herpes. <laughs> <laughs> you know you've had too much to drink on a Saturday night if you've met one of those. That is very true. <laughs> There was a story I read not too long ago where there was actually there was an island in Florida where they housed all these uh, monk all these uh, macaques macaque mm -hmm. monkeys, and the majority of them had herpes and they kind of broke loose from the island so there were like these hordes of herpes monkeys, <laughs> these oh hordes God. of herpes macaques just marauding through South Florida somewhere, which just just doesn't surprise me because I've. Well. I've I used My to live down there. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, God. Well, if you could irradiate one and get them to be 60 foot tall, sounds like a new horror film. Attack I, of the Herpes Monkeys. I think, I think Attack of the Herpes Monkeys is a good episode title. A uh, 60 foot herpy monkey. <laughs> Attack of the 60 foot herpy monkey. <laughs> sounds like a new uh, Disney film. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's... <laughs> See, just, just so you know, that's how I tend to name my episodes, whatever random stupid stuff we say that sounds fun, because this show's really only good for generating uh, episode titles, uh, band band names, and names of uh, uh, sketch comedy troops. That's, that's really all we do on this show. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like what they do in Hollywood, what is it, the LA Connection or uh, one of those improv groups. Improv. That's that's the what I was trying to think of when I said sketch comedy. Yeah, improv troops. That's yeah. No, they're they're big up in L.A. My actually, my wife took a, a thing. I think it was from the L.A. Connection. But there is she took it. She wanted to go do some acting again. And I said, look, if you really want to do your. I mean, I tell the actors, if you really want to do yourself a favor, go take an improv class. Not because you're going to become an improv sketch comedian, but what you end up doing in the class gets you over the hump in terms of being embarrassed about getting up and doing things. I mean, because they'll have you doing things you wouldn't believe in your wildest imagination. Oh, but yeah. you also learn to think on your feet. It's, you know, they'll say to two actors, hey, you're a wagon wheel and you're a vanilla yogurt. Go. Go. Yeah, I, I, I've I've done some. Maybe you have to start improving. <laughs> yeah, and, and as as a comedian, I know a lot of other uh, stand up comics. I know they really aren't too keen on uh, improv uh, acting and improv groups because that to them it's not comedy. It's like, well, it's not supposed to be. It's acting. Yeah, and some it, of them are really good, and some of the some stuff of them that definitely. comes out of that is totally amazing. I mean, you've seen the L.A. Connection, or there's a couple other groups up there that are just totally amazing and i mean they are funny they are i mean oh, yeah. side splitting 
Yeah. But, you know, they also, you also learn how to become, I think, very quickly. Uh, if you can combine that with some acting training, you're, you're ready to go as an actor. Because you can go to yeah. acting school for four years, come out, and you're, you know, first time you go on an interview or an audition, you're a nervous wreck. Because you oh, yeah. don't know how to do it or what's going to be expected to you. But I tell you, if you have that background uh, in improv, they can't throw you. No matter what they say to you or actually have you do or try it another way, you're capable of doing it. It is really one of, it should be required of all actors to be able to do that. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think with, with stand-up comics, I mean, taking an improv class as a stand-up comic, it's going to, I mean, it's going to help with your stage presence. It's going to help with thinking on your toes because you never know when you're going to get heckled and you've got to come back with something. And if you're a newer comic and you don't have that skill to fire anything back, you're dead in the water. <laughs> you're going yeah. to have a really bad set. <laughs> really bad. That's when the hook comes out and gets you. But what you also <laughs> don't know what's going to happen is what producers in the audience that night and is looking and go, this guy's a genius. Right. You know, you're Jim Carrey or Robin Williams and you get yanked out of obscurity into your own TV series or movies. You yeah. know, that, that's where all those guys came from. Roseanne, uh, Barr, um, you know, it's a great proving ground because if you're funny, you're either funny or you're not. And you prove yourself instantly and you're up there, you're on your own. And, you know, it's yeah. not like coming up with something or writing it. These people can think on their feet and they're funny and they've developed, you know, a character or an act that they do. And yeah. if there's a producer out there, you know, uh, hey, you could be the next Tim Allen or who knows. Yeah, I, I've always had a, a great deal of fun doing improv. And one thing, if you're if you're stressed out and you're having a bad time, whatever it is, if you're going to go do improv for a couple hours, you're going to forget about everything else that's going on because that's just the most in the moment you can be. It's the most in the moment, and it's also the most you'll find out if you're any good instantly. <laughs> <So> like, <laughs> yeah. That didn't yeah. go over. That silence was overwhelming. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, all this stuff is really important. In fact, I, I don't know that I mentioned this. You know, I produced a project uh, probably about eight years ago. And unfortunately, we got caught up in that first recession, kind of stopped us from going ahead with it big time. But um, I produced this series uh, called uh, The Actor's Journey. And what it's about, you know, if you become an actor, you find out very quickly that there's skills needed that have nothing to do with being an actor. That's the first thing you do if you decide you want to become an actor is go to a, a mom and pop acting school or you go to a university or you go to Yale or Harvard. You, be, you know, you get your degree in acting and then you get out and you go, what the hell do I do? I know how to act, but, you know, I'm not always on a stage or in front of a camera. How do I get a job? And that was that has been a problem in show business since it started. People have no idea what the you know the non-performance skills are of being an actor. Right. So about eight years ago, I decided to produce this. Um, it's kind of an educational series on uh, becoming an actor, but not related to acting or craft or anything. Totally devoted to the business side. Of, of being an actor so you can know what to do when you're not acting and how to get jobs and how to develop your skills and what this means, what that means. But anyway, what I did is uh, we wrote this program and it turned into a 10 hour program that we ended up putting it on. I think it was on eight DVDs about an hour and a half long each and it covered about 60 topics and is taught by a um, hundred industry people who've had 30 or more years 
uh, in the industry as, as actors and, you know, what their, you know, highly educated opinions are, how they went about, you know, seeking work and what worked for them and what didn't. So you're literally, literally getting the information from the horse's mouth packed. I think it was 45 or 50 of these people had either won or been nominated for Academy Emmy Golden Globe Awards. And not just actors, uh, we included uh, directors, producers, executive producers, showrunners, uh, agents, uh, managers, any way you could look at the actor in, in a certain topic of what we were talking about. And uh, anyway, put together this uh, program called The Actor's Journey. Nice. Where, where can we find that? Well, actually, you, can, you know, it, it's not available yet because we're right in the process now. It, it came out originally on DVD. And then about three years ago, I pulled it because uh, I was working on something else and I just, I couldn't deal with it. And uh, anyway, I would say probably within the next couple months, it'll be, be available now online and you'll be able to go there and, uh, you know, you don't, there won't be DVDs anymore. You can just watch the files. But like I said, it, it's all the information you can't get. <laughs> it's nice. the problem. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, I, I have a lot been of that way. I have a lot of local friends in acting, and I know that would benefit uh, all of us tremendously. Because yeah, if you want to see some samples, kind of of what it is and who's involved, you can go to YouTube and type in the actor's journey. And uh, we made, I think there was about sixty promo clips we put up there with the various uh, people who uh, you know participated in it and actually teach the program. And yeah, some pretty big people, like I said, it. Uh, you know, the director, Richard Donner, uh, a guy named Jack Shea, who directed every TV series. You know, a lot of these people aren't known to the actors because they're behind the scenes people like directors and producers. And right. you don't always know their name when you first started out. But, you know, Jack produced and directed, God, I, you know, so many shows. But he was also, we had the president of the Directors Guild of America, which was Jack Shea. Uh, we also had the uh, president of the Screen Actors Guild at the time. Uh, that we did this program. So you're literally, you know, getting the information from the horse's mouth. And that's a real problem for people starting out. They're being advised by people, you know, agents who are just starting out, managers who are just starting out and you're their client. So they don't know much more than you do. You know, you really need to find somebody who's had 20, 30 years of experience and has been through the mill, uh, you know, on the other side of the, the camera about, how all this works and comes together so that you can get work and find sustainability as an actor. Yeah, it's something I'm proud of. I wish that would end up being my epitaph instead of my three sons. <laughs> I created uh, this program that for whatever reason, you know, the industry has never done that, never taken it upon themselves. The Screen Actors Guild, you know, teaches a smattering of the business stuff, but uh, you know, it's left for every actor, unfortunately, to reinvent the wheel go out there and reinvent it for himself uh, from scratch and either you do and or you don't you well, know, the, the numbers don't lie 99 percent of people starting out as an actor you know uh, three to five years later they're selling shoes or have gone on yeah. to some other career well yeah that, that that's an important thing so i'll tell you what when that does get released when that does come out i'd love to have you back on to talk about it and promote the crap out of it because that's oh okay yeah yeah something i know a lot of people should see you're not kidding. Yeah. And the, the, the reason, too, we wanted to go with the digital media so people, like I said, can see it online. It makes it a lot less expensive because, you know, actors who are just starting out, they're not well healed. And at, at the time we released it, although we had 
really great sales. You know, the program cost $229. It was, like I said, you're getting, uh, I think it was 10 DVDs. So it was about $22 for about an hour's worth of material. So uh, 22 bucks after you just got through spending $100,000 at Yale or Harvard and still don't know what you're doing or 30000 at UCLA or USC and you're going, I don't know who to call or what to say or what did this mean? They said this to me, but there's nobody to explain it. You know, and that that's what we tried to, to do is really get into the depth and breadth of all this obscure stuff that it, it takes so much time to learn. You know, you spend five years trying to learn the business side of the business. Here and there, you'll get some work as an actor. So hopefully you're aggregating some, you know, some things for your reel uh, that you can use and scenes so people can see what you look like and sound like, which is very important now. You know, the era I came out of, uh, you know, unless you had your reel like I did of Skippy, good luck. But it was tough to get stuff that would be on the network. You know, you couldn't get it unless you sat in front of your TV set and taped it. But in those days, you know, casting directors and agents, they didn't want to look at that stuff. Just give me your picture. But now it's vital. Oh, yeah. Your, your reel precedes you. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to come back and talk about it. I'll let you know when we're up. I'm, you know, I've uh, been working on that to get, it'll involve two different websites. Again, I'll, I'll put the actor's journey back up dot com and then that'll connect up to a, a different website where you know once you've decided what you want to watch and the order you want to watch it in you just click on the links and it takes you to the other website but you know it's nominal now to watch the the clips or the segments uh where like when we were selling it as a dvd you basically had to buy the entire thing where now you can watch it at your leisure nice you know? yeah <laughs> yeah so it makes it much easier for like I said, for people starting out, you know, not one of the things that it does, and this sounds crappy, <laughs> but it's really not. You're going to watch it and you're going to hear things and, you know, they talk about at the beginning of your career and whatever your illusions about what the industry industry is and fame and fortune and how exciting it is to be an actor. I don't want to say we deflate those, but you really get an idea of what you're going to be doing. And, you know, if that ends up being a turning point for somebody else going, geez, you know, I don't want to do that. That's not <laughs> how I want to spend my life. You're yep. better off. You know? It's not it's as life. glamorous as some people think. <laughs> it's not as glamorous. It, it basically is a factory job where there's a lot of publicity and hype around it. And that's mainly what people see and go, I want that lifestyle. But the real lifestyle of an actor is being up at four or five in the morning on the set, shooting for 12 hours or more. Um, going home, if there's time, hopefully time to eat your dinner and learn your lines for the next day and you're back the next day doing the same thing, you know? Uh, yeah. so I think the longest day I had on set was 18 hours. That was a rough one. Yeah. Well, that's why I always tell actors, we don't get paid to, to act. We get paid to wait. The acting we do for free. <laughs> yeah. But you got to hurry up and wait. Everything's got to be, you got to wait right yeah. now. Right. You're going, why did I have to be here at five in the morning when my, you didn't shoot my first scene till 11 o'clock. <laughs> exactly. Well, well that goes on daily. <laughs> Stan Livingston, thank you so much for, for uh, zooming in. It's, it's been great talking to you. Definitely great like to have you back on. We'll yeah. do our part to make sure that you're known for the actor's journey. 
oh yeah like, <laughs> like i said that's going to be my final push you know just yeah. to really well you know i saw it years and years ago and nothing and i didn't do anything about it either you know, although you know having worked not only as an actor but a producer director having cast things you know i've learned that in inside now from both in front of the camera and the back so you want to impart that information onto new people who you know, shouldn't have to struggle because if you could have all that at the tip of your fingers right when you start, it's hard enough to do, you know, but if you have this, at least, you know, you got a fighting chance maybe to get in there and, you know, you'll at least know the ropes so you don't go down some of these, uh, you know, side roads that take you to nowhere and you go, oh my God, I just wasted three years or five years with that agent or I did this and that turned into nothing, you know, but we illuminate all that for people so that they, you know, can do what's necessary to get work and not go down, you know, these obscure sidetracks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, th thanks so much. We're going to have to, we're going to have to uh, call it a day. It's uh, unfortunately, cause it's been great talking to you. Great talking well, to you. I'd love that. to have you back on and continue, but, uh, uh, we'll definitely keep in touch and, yeah. Uh, yeah, let's do that. And yeah, check it out. Go to YouTube and you know, type in the actor's journey. You'll you can see what you want to see about it. And, uh, yeah, some, some little, uh, gems there too, to, uh, yeah. you know, if you want to learn something, we'll talk again. All right. And thanks for listening to the life radio show. Uh, you keep tuning in. We're going to keep doing these cause you know, that's, that's what we do. All right. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Life Radio Show podcast. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, if you want to listen live, we are on Tuesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. on WWSU 106.9 FM. You can also stream the show live at WWSU1069.org, and we go Facebook Live at the Life Radio Show's Facebook page. If you have suggestions or comments, feel free to email thelife1069 at gmail.com. Overwhelms me. The brutal presence. Penguins are adorable. I just didn't know that they pooped laughing gas.